From Parade Magazine comes the story of self-made millionaire Eugene Lane, who greatly changed the lives of a sixth grade class in East Harlem. Mr. Lang had been asked to speak to a class of 59 sixth graders, of which many lived in awful conditions that just seemed absolutely hopeless. What could he say to inspire these students, most of whom would drop out of school within the next few years? He was already struggling just to get the children to look at him as he spoke. And so, scrapping his notes, he decided to speak to them from his heart. And he said, stay in school, and I will help pay the college tuition for each and every one of you. And at that moment, the lives of the students were changed. They erupted in applause, and for the first time, they had hope. One student said, I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. It was a golden feeling. And nearly 90% of that class went on to graduate from high school. This real-life story illustrates the significant power of hope. Hope has the power to change our lives dramatically for good. Hope gives us reason to continue on into tomorrow when times are hard, when things get going. Hope gives us something to live for and to work for. And so each and every one of us here this morning needs hope. Thankfully, the Bible is aware of this. It is not ignorant to our need of hope. And its pages are filled with the message of hope to us. And so this morning, it brings us to the hope-filled book of Zechariah. Now, you might be surprised if you ever read this book. And perhaps be even a little bit confused. If you ever read Zechariah, I'm guessing you left the book not being encouraged, but actually confused and perhaps slightly depressed. And if that's you, please know you are not alone when you read this book. In regard to this book, Jerome, one of the great scholars of the early church, described Zechariah as the most obscure of books. And Martin Luther said of Zechariah 14, here in this chapter, I give up. I have no idea what he's talking about. So why study such an obscure book? Why preach from this book? Part of the reason we're in Zechariah here this morning is due to my study in the Gospel of Mark. In the course of studying Mark, I would often find that he along with all the other gospel writers, would reference the book of Zechariah often. In fact, this book is the most quoted by the gospels during the Passion Week of Jesus. The gospel writers saw Zechariah as one of the key books in the Old Testament that pointed forward to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And yet, when I poured over these direct quotations referencing Zechariah, I found that I, I like knew nothing at all about the context or setting. Nothing made sense to me. I would find myself completely lost just over and over again. And even as I talked with several of you in this room here this morning, you encountered the same thing. 
And this seemed problematic because the New Testament authors saw this book as a goldmine when it came to Jesus and our future hope. So why is it that many of us here in this room know nothing about the book? Why is it that many of us have never even heard a sermon preached from Zechariah? I haven't. I think a part of the reason is that Zechariah, first of all, is in the Minor Prophets. And which of us actually read the Minor Prophets these days? Well, because they're difficult, right? They're obscure. We don't get it. And they're difficult because we don't understand their history. We don't understand their culture or the genre and the purpose of their writings. These writings are over 2,000 years old. And so it's hard to understand, let alone apply it to our life. So because of these obstacles, is my hope this morning to eliminate some of these barriers so that when we read Zechariah, we can actually understand some of what is taking place. With that goal in mind, then, we will work to understand the following. The purpose of the book, the literary genre, the historical context, and the structure of the message. And I can't promise that you will understand the book completely. In fact, I know that you won't. But I hope by God's grace, you will understand it better than you did before and will appreciate it. So as we come to this book, what is it all about? As we stated in the beginning, this book is meant to give God's people hope and encouragement. The theme of hope is also indicated by the name of Zechariah, which means the Lord remembers. He remembers his covenant with his people, and he will be faithful to them despite their unfaithfulness to himself. This is all implied in the book's name. But not only is it meant to give a living hope to God's people, but this hope that is given is meant to drive God's people to action. It's a living, active hope which drives a person to obey God and follow him in light of all that he's done for them. So as one reads this book, we cannot do so without understanding that the book is meant to encourage us to live with hope that drives us to live for God. If we understand this overarching goal and purpose of the book, you can read it better as you go through it. But as we mentioned before, sometimes it's hard to see hope in the book. And that's because we often don't understand the literary genre. And failing to understand the genre of the book, we may miss the point altogether. For instance, we don't read comic books the same way that we read the Wall Street Journal. Why is that? Because they're different genres. One is meant for entertainment purposes, and the other is meant for facts. It's factual. And similarly, we don't read a poem like we read the newspaper, right? Imagine, if you will, if you told your spouse or your significant other that you would climb the highest mountain for them and, and, and swim the deepest seas for, for him or her. And they respond by looking at you and saying, you're a liar. 
There's no way you could possibly do that. You're way too out of shape, and it's just plain impossible. Now, hopefully, you know, they're, they're being playful, you know, playful, they're joking. But if not, they completely missed the point of what you were trying to say to them, right? They would miss the point that you were using poetic language to convey your feelings, not communicate facts. And so the same can be true if we don't understand the genre of Zechariah. We can miss the main point. Now in the Bible, there are many genres we are more or less familiar with. There is narrative, law, poetic, history, wisdom, prophetic, and the like. And of course, with all of these books, you can have an overlap of genres. Just as we can in movies have action, comedy films, or romantic drama films. So the same is true for the scriptures. So when it comes to Zechariah, what genre is it? I think to put it simply, the book of Zechariah falls into the categories of poetic, prophetic, and apocalyptic. When we read this book, this is the lens, the glasses, so to speak, that we are to see the book in. While we are more familiar with, you know, the poetic and the prophetic genres, I think the apocalyptic genre is one that we are not nearly familiar with at all. And what we think we may know may actually lead us to think of a couple wrong things. My guess is when you hear the word apocalyptic, you likely think of the word apocalypse. And when you think of apocalypse, you immediately think of scenes like this or this, right? End of the world, destruction, chaos. And this idea has been permeated by both children's movies and adult movies, both of the like. They revolve around the destructive end of the world as we know it. So when we think of apocalyptic things, we think of them as downright scary and uncomfortable. But when it comes to the biblical genre of apocalyptic literature, we need to realize that is not the main focus or goal. If you think that's what this is, you'll miss the point completely. To emphasize the destructive end of the world and the scariness of it, you will miss the point. Biblical apocalyptic literature is instead meant to reveal hidden things from a divine perspective. It's meant to reveal hidden things from a divine perspective. And this becomes clear when we study the term apocalypse in the Bible, which comes directly from the Greek word apokalupsis. And the primary meaning behind this word is to reveal, revelation. And what is it meant to reveal? It's meant to reveal hidden things as they are from a divine perspective. It is meant to give heavenly perspective on the way things truly are, both to warn and to encourage God's people. And so this is why when you read these, these visions, these apocalyptic visions, you're seeing the unseen realm. It's trying to communicate in human language divine realities, which as you can imagine, that's, that's hard to do. How can you communicate the divine with human language? So please keep this in mind, especially when you encounter the eight visions in Zechariah. While the apocalyptic genre reveals many things previously hidden to us, the main thing we must not miss 
is that it is ultimately about revealing Jesus Christ to us. It's about revealing to us his Messiah from his perspective, who is our ultimate hope in life and in death. So the message of hope, then, is grasped when we understand the genre, but it is also seen when we look at the historical context. If we are to understand what's taking place in this book, then we also need to know something about the setting. Because as you begin reading this book, it becomes immediately evident that the author assumes you know a lot already. So like Star Wars and, and other movies where they have like that brief description at the beginning where they're giving you the context of what's going on, that's what I'm going to try to do for you here in a moment. I'm going to give you the background to the book of Zechariah, the historical setting. And so by understanding the setting, we're not lost when we jump into it. And as we understand the context for this book, then you'll also be able to understand the setting for Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Daniel as well. This is the background for all of those books. So what do we need to know? First, we need to know that the Israelites have gone through just some of the worst experiences possible in the ancient world. They had gone through travesties because the people of God ignored the clear commandments of God and his prophets. They did not obey the law, nor did they act justly toward one another, even though God had warned them numerous times. So eventually God did what he promised through the prophet Jeremiah. God would discipline his people for their rebellion through the surrounding nations. And so it happened. Israel would be conquered and scattered from the promised land by Babylon. As a result, Israel's homeland was destroyed and pillaged by invading armies. Jerusalem was razed and burned to the ground. The temple where God's presence was supposed to dwell was plundered and destroyed and completely leveled. And many of their people and leaders were killed, while the rest were sold off into slavery. And after suffering in this way, Judah lost its sense of identity and its means to worship God. But after many years in captivity, there was finally a glimmer of hope. And that was the sudden upheaval of the Babylonians by King Cyrus of Persia. And in a matter of a day, the great Babylon that had scattered Israel was conquered by Cyrus of Persia. King Cyrus, once he took over, was different from most of the rulers of that day and age. His method of ruling was to encourage his subjects to submit to him, not through use of force, but through favors and kindness. Cyrus would pose himself as a liberator of every land he conquered. And he would do this by encouraging residents of those nations to return to God and the traditional ways of living from once they went came. And it's in this way then that he granted captive Israelites permission to go back to their homeland, to rebuild their city and temple on his dime. And this is all recorded in Ezra 1. So some of the Jews who were scattered went back to the homeland. They went back in hopes 
of rebuilding their city and their temple. But then something tragic and awful happened. Right after Cyrus makes this decree, he dies. And his son, Cambyses II, takes over. Now, Cambyses was nothing like his father. He ruled foolishly and without thought. He actually went back on what his father said time and time again. And so he's like, wait, we're giving money to the Israelites? I don't think so. And he would go into the promised land, he would plunder it, and Israel's hopes were crushed. They put a hold on the temple project for 20 years, and they would face despair and discouragement. You might imagine the trauma inflicted on someone who was just beginning to have hope again just to have it crushed and dashed a year later. Thankfully, Cambus's reign eventually ended as he died from disputed circumstances. And he would be succeeded by his younger brother, Beria, who would immediately be overthrown by Darius. Darius would then begin ruling in 522 BC. Within two years of ruling, Darius put down all the rebellions in the land, and the land under Persian control would have much peace during his reign. And it's during this time that Zechariah, the prophet of God, began to encourage the people to build the temple once more and to return to God wholeheartedly. So with this background, we can see that Zechariah is writing to a broken and despondent people. They are hopeless, having had their lands ravaged and torn to pieces. No doubt they had in their minds, why continue on at this point? What's the point of trying? God is against us, and there's clearly nothing we can do about it. And so it's here when God's people seem to be at the end of themselves that Zechariah brings this message of hope. As we now begin to look at this message, please know that this is an abbreviated explanation, and we'll cover each of these sections more in depth in the weeks to come. And while I have given you the outline of what I see so far in your bulletin, things may slightly change as I study this obscure book more and more and more. So with that preface, we look at Zechariah's message of hope. And we first learn that it is divided into two main sections. Chapters 1 through 8 form a concise unit, and 9 through 14 form the second. And at risk of oversimplifying, the first unit has more to do with Israel's present situation with glimmers of future hope, while the second half of the book is primarily about Israel's future hope. But then after dividing it into these two main blocks— we can further break it down into four smaller hope-filled units of thought. And the first of these four comes in the introduction, the hope of restoration. It's here that Zechariah addresses the reality that the people of God, by their sins, angered God. They were not faithful in keeping God's commands, and as a result, they faced the consequences of their rebellion. God had judged them severely. But despite their failings, God compassionately and lovingly welcomes them back to himself. This is made evident in verse 3, 
where God says, return to me and I will return to you. Much like the story of the prodigal sons, where the younger son receives warm embrace when he returns to the father, so Zechariah gives us the Old Testament version of that story. Despite your failings, despite ruining your life, there is hope if you turn back to me. So the same is true for us as well. No matter how far we may have fallen, the same God who works in Zechariah works the same way for us today. It's from here that we move on to the second section. Hope from the divine perspective. It's at this point where I'm guessing most of us will get a bit confused as to what's taking place. As there are eight visions that seem complex and confusing. But in remembering that this book is apocalyptic in that it's meant to reveal reality as it truly is from God's perspective, you can read these visions as a picture of reality from God's perspective meant to give you hope. So there's hope then in these eight visions. And these visions are again meant to give a snapshot of God's redemptive work in the universe, though we can't see it. And in seeing what God is doing, we are driven to live for him and rebuild the temple and the city that was ruined for the Israelites. Might be helpful to know here that these visions are also ordered in a very, very neat way. Zechariah intentionally places these eight visions in a chiastic order. Now, some of us may or may not know what a chiasm is, but it is a poetic device used to help draw attention to what is central. So to put it simply, you work your way from the out, what is least important on the outer rings of the edges, to what is most important at the center. And they correlate with each other. So visions one and eight correlate in that they have a patrol of four horses that symbolize and picture for us God's sovereignty and absolute control over the universe. In visions two and seven, you have the redemptive work of God, both now for his people and in the future, by freeing them from evil and oppression. In visions three and six, you have the new Jerusalem that God is building through his word. And when you come to the climax, the center of these visions, Zechariah addresses the two current leaders of Israel. These two leaders were Joshua, the high priest, the son of Jehozadak, not to be confused with Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. I, I actually thought that's who it was initially. I'm like, that's, that's way off. Not him, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, who was one of the main governors and leaders responsible for rebuilding the temple, and more significantly, of the line of David. And so these central visions gave hope to two of Israel's main leaders who were leading Israel and has spoke an encouraging word to them. God would be with them if they faithfully obeyed in all things. If they depended on his Holy Spirit, God would take care of them. But the main source of hope comes at the center of these visions. A vision of one who would rise up and save his people. This person would be called the servant and the branch. And it would be this branch who would be the ultimate hope for
for the people of Israel. This branch would be a stone with seven eyes. And it would be through this stone that the iniquity of the land would be wiped out in a single day. All their sins completely erased and washed away in a single day by the servant, the branch. This is hope for God's people. Now to make sure that they don't miss this, what is absolutely crucial at the center, Zechariah caps this section by again bringing it up at the end of these visions. And so basically by doing this, he's saying, pay attention to this. Don't miss it. Zechariah would place a crown on Joshua, the high priest's head. And by doing this, Joshua would become a symbol of what this future branch would do and become. This future branch who would come through the line of Zerubbabel would become both high priest and king forever and ever on the throne of David. And so it is this future messianic hope that they were to look for and to hope in. For it's in the servant, the branch, the stone that we find ultimate redemption. After these visions and prophecies, Zechariah then answers a question from the people of Israel. Since God's kingdom is about to arrive, should we stop fasting? Should we stop mourning the destruction of our homeland? But then Zechariah responds, not by answering their question, but by basically saying, that's the wrong question altogether. What really matters is whether or not this hope that God is giving you here in these visions is leading you to obey him and submit to him as he's called you to do. So don't waste your time asking the wrong questions or focusing on these religiosities. Don't do that. That's what your ancestors did, and they were wrong. Instead, turn from oppressing the widow and the orphan. Do justice, love, mercy, truth, and peace. Be faithful and caring for one another, and let the hope that God's given you lead you to act as the redeemed people of God. So the basic idea of this section then is that God's promises to his people demand faithful obedience and action on their part. It demands that we turn from our wicked, sinful ways. And as the opening of the book said so eloquently, return to the Lord. Return to him and he will return to you. So this hope given is meant to lead us to be the kind of people that we should be. And it really prepares us then for the king and his kingdom, which is in the final chapters of this book. We come then to the final portion of Zechariah's letter. And let me be upfront here that chapters 9 through 14 are very, very confusing. Okay, they're more confusing than the first eight chapters. And there's no small amount of debate as to what they exactly pertain to. This is also the part that both Jerome and Luther struggled with greatly. And to be perfectly honest with you here this morning, I don't have all the answers for what's going on here. But what is clear, based on my study in Mark, is that the New Testament authors saw chapters 9 through 14 as messianic in nature. They saw these chapters 
as pictures of the future Messiah and his kingdom, how he would act and function. And so I can say with certainty that by the way the New Testament authors used Zechariah, they saw as clear evidence for Jesus as the true Messiah and what his kingdom would be like when he brought it to bear on us. So as we come to 9 through 14, there is hope given in the future king and kingdom of God to come. With that in mind, let me try to summarize what takes place in a nutshell that makes sense to us. But please know that it is far more complicated than I am making it seem here. Chapter 9 opens up with God's judgment on the nations and then abruptly transitions into celebration and victory as the future Messiah arrives humbly on a donkey. It would be through this Messiah that God would save his people and extend his kingdom across the globe. But as we continue reading on into chapters 10 and 11, Zechariah further depicts this Messiah as a shepherd over his sheep. He will gather his sheep to himself and restore them. But in a tragic turn of events, this shepherd king would be rejected by his sheep. He would be rejected for 30 pieces of silver. And he would be struck and killed. And the sheep would be handed over to treacherous shepherds who would not care for them. And it's at this point, we're wondering if God is done with his people yet. But chapters 12 through 14 give us future hope. God would certainly save his people. He would deliver them. He would pour out his spirit and the people of God would mourn as they look at the one whom they pierced. A fountain would be opened up that would wash away sin and purity and God would cleanse and purify his people as silver and gold through fire. God would then say, these are my people and they will say, the Lord is our God. So it's in the final chapter, we are given a picture of water flowing out from Jerusalem to the east and to the west in all seasons of the year. And it will be through and from the city of Jerusalem that the Lord will be king over the earth. So it's in these final chapters that the ultimate hope, hope looked for is in God's Messiah and future kingdom. So to recap all of this in a nutshell again, as we look at the overall structure of this book, we find that chapters 1 through 6 are meant to give us hope as we return to God and trust in his sovereign plans. And it is this hope that is meant to transform us from the inside out to be God's people. And by being transformed by this hope, we hopefully will be ready to receive the king over the kingdom when he comes in 9 through 14. So I hope as Christians here this morning, we can immediately see the relevance of the message more than even the ancient Israelites did. Because what was concealed to the Israelites has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. For Jesus is the great high priest and king that was promised. He is the branch and the cornerstone of our faith. He is the one who rides humbly on a donkey, triumphantly over his enemies. And yet he is also the one who was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. 
He's the good shepherd who was struck on our behalf. And by his death, he did away with our sins in a single day. And so he is the one that we mourn as we see him pierced for our transgressions so that we might be redeemed. So because of his sacrifice and his resurrection, we are a people with great hope. For Jesus is making all things new. So let us renew our hope in Christ from this book in the weeks to come, even today, and plunder it for all the riches it has to offer us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you for your word. Your word is precious. Your word is true. It brings life to us, especially when we see Christ revealed. We praise your awesome wisdom from the beginning of time and how you would redeem your people. And we thank you for the glimpses of hope that we see in Zechariah, now revealed to us in Christ. So as we see Jesus revealed to us, may we respond to that hope by living for you. May we respond to you by treasuring Christ all the more and all that he's done for us. Help us as the church to do this for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.